Um, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 103. So if you want to turn there, I'll have Roy come and read it to us. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is for everlasting. Is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, thank you. So, Lord willing, I would like to look at this psalm this morning. Um, Due to time, we're not going to be able to go necessarily verse by verse through the entire psalm, but I do hope, Lord willing, to be able to touch on uh, this psalm in its entirety, at least kind of section by section. And we will go verse by verse through some of it. Um, The theme of this psalm is not very difficult to discern. It is a psalm of worship and praise, and it begins and ends with this call to bless the Lord. And this call is primarily addressed to the psalmist himself, 
but it does extend there at the end of the chapter to the hosts of heaven and to all creation there at the end of the psalm. And in the middle, in between these two calls to praise, the psalmist then exhorts the listener to not forget God's benefits. And that's in verse 2 there. And then he goes on to list some of the benefits in verses 3 through 5. And then the rest of the chapter is a continuation of this thought of remembering what God has done, remembering his benefits and meditating on the character of God. Verses 3 through 5 speak in more of a singular tense where the psalmist is speaking about what God has done for him personally And then the rest of the chapter seems to have more of a plural sense where it's speaking of what God has done for Israel or for the people of God. And one thing I do want to mention here in brief is that, at at least in my Bible, uh, before verse 1 there, it says a psalm of David. So we can attribute this as being written by David, although there's really nothing in the psalm specifically where it gives any reference to any events going on in his life. But I think it's a safe assumption to say this was written by David. So throughout this message, I'll be referring to sometimes as the psalmist, other times to David specifically. Um, But before we get uh, into this, looking verse by verse, I wanted to point out one thing, and that is who this psalm is written to. This psalm is written to the Christian, to a believer. And I point that out because in this psalm we will see some of the character of God, such as his patience and his forgiveness of sins. But there is a context that we do need to remember. In verses 11 and 17, um, which we will be looking at here momentarily, the psalmist speaks of of God's great loving kindness, And he points out that this loving kindness is towards those who fear the Lord. And this is not to say that the Lord does not have uh, loving kindness, does not have love for the lost, or that he does not have compassion upon those who are in sin. Exactly the opposite. The Lord does have compassion upon the lost, and he does have love uh, for the lost. But it does mean that the unbeliever should not presume upon the Lord's mercy and patience. And what we'll see here in this chapter is a special love um, and a special mercy that God shows towards his children, towards the believer. And if you are an unbeliever, this same love and mercy and forgiveness will be shown to you too. If you will only humble yourself, turn from your sin, and cast yourself completely upon the mercy of Christ. If you will be one that it says here that fears the Lord, then this same loving kindness and mercy and forgiveness will be yours. So with that introduction then, I want to go ahead and start looking here at this chapter. And we'll begin right at the beginning here. Um, Verses 1 and 2 both mention this phrase, bless the Lord. This exact phrase comes up six times in this psalm, and half of them are directed to the psalmist himself when he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. It is repeated for emphasis, 
It's important. This is what the psalmist is really wanting to get across here. Bless the Lord. It's the main message of the psalm. But what does this mean, to bless the Lord? This word bless has different uses. Um, Sometimes it's used to request blessing from God for someone or for something. And as an example, I thought of this. Before a meal, we oftentimes what we'll refer to as ask the blessing for the meal. And what we're doing, we're not pronouncing a blessing upon the food. We're asking the Lord to bless what has been provided. Or maybe before um, a trip, you know, you'll ask for the Lord's blessing upon the trip. Think about Aaron, the benediction there, where he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. He's not pronouncing that blessing upon them. He's asking the Lord, may the Lord do this for you, bless you. So that's one way that we use the word bless. But there's another use of this word, and that is to extol or to glorify. And that is what is meant here in this psalm. When the psalmist says, bless the Lord, he's not asking for blessing. He is calling himself and others to glorify God, to worship and praise the Lord. Well, the second half of verse uh, 1 says, And all that is within me, bless his holy name. David is not just promoting a verbal expression of praise to God. He is not encouraging the listener to just mechanically repeat the lines of this song. He says, with all that is within me. That means this praise to God is from the heart. It is not just lip service. It begins in the mind by remembering what God has done for us. And the mind moves the heart to respond in adoration and praise And the heart moves the whole person then to worship and praise the Lord. So you see there the fuller meaning of what what he's saying here when he says, All that is within me, bless his holy name. This is very similar uh, to the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's from... Mark chapter 12, and it also appears in the other Gospels as well. In other words, every part of you should love the Lord, right? Not just some part of you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That encompasses the whole person. And here in this psalm, David is exhorting us to worship the Lord with every part of our being. All that is within me. Bless his holy name. True worship is not just a mouthing of words. True worship involves the whole person, the mind, the heart, and the body. Or as it says there in Matthew, it involves heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, every part of us. Well, in verse 2 then, David exhorts himself, and I include us in this as well, to forget none of his benefits. So why is remembrance so crucial to worship? What is so bad about forgetting? And for this, I would like to ask you all to help in this. 
What are some outcomes for a person who forgets about the benefits of God? Or put another way, what can forgetting about God's benefits lead to? So do you all have any thoughts? What can forgetting about God's benefits lead us to? Okay, I heard two. Ingratitude, what was the other? Doubting. Okay, doubting and ingratitude. I I would classify both of those as unthankfulness and unbelief. Doubting and unbelief go synonymous. What else? Grumbling, okay, That's, that is definitely true. It comes from a heart of unthankfulness. I had a few others here. Um, fear and anxiety. To forget what God has done leads a person, and I think this is an, uh, you might say it's a, a fruit of unbelief, ultimately, but it leads to fear and anxiety, I think also we could say that it leads to a coldness towards God, just a spiritual um, apathy towards God when we forget about all that he has done for us. And there, there could be many more, but I think that kind of hits on particularly what I was thinking about, unthankfulness, unbelief, and you guys uh, mentioned some what I would call synonyms of those, grumbling and uh, doubting. And then coldness towards God and fear and anxiety. Well, think about the children of Israel and how often they forgot how God had miraculously delivered them from Egypt. They would so quickly forget, which led to what? It led to unbelief and complaining against God, right? They would, they would get out in the middle of a situation and it was just, they would forget what God had miraculously done, parting the Red Sea, delivering them, and then they start complaining, we have nothing to eat, or there's no water. They forget all of God's provisions, and it immediately leads to, we're going to die out here. That's unbelief. And then complaining, Lord, you don't even care about us. You've brought us out here. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? That, that heart of unthankfulness and unbelief. But note also how often God commanded them to remember. This theme of remembering God's deliverance from Egypt comes up over and over in the Old Testament. And I think it is right to say this, that if Israel had continually remembered the Lord and remembered his great deliverance and provision for them, they would not have fallen into such idolatry and sin. I think that's right to say if they had remembered what the Lord had done and remembered the Lord himself, they would not have fallen into idolatry and sin. And I was thinking about this this morning that I think it's also right to say this. I believe that forgetting God's benefits is in and of itself a sin. To forget God's benefits is a sin. And that sin leads to much greater sin of unbelief, unthankfulness. It's like the downward spiral when we forget what God has done for us. Well, if forgetting can lead to greater and greater sin like unthankfulness and unbelief, then we should make every effort 
to not forget. We should seek to remind ourselves of God's dealings in our own lives and in the lives of the brethren, the the saints that we know, and throughout church history. I mean, think about this. When you open a book and read about God's provision for a missionary somewhere or someone back in uh, church history, that should encourage you that here is a a great benefit of God to this brother or this sister. And then also as we open up the pages of scripture, it should remind us of God's great benefit. And as we remember and recount what God has already done, it gives us a fresh glimpse into his greatness and his worthiness of our praise. And that's ultimately what this is all about. It's that it should move us Towards God, It should move us towards an attitude, a heart of thankfulness, and a heart of worship. Many of us can testify to feeling spiritually dry at times, but through recounting what God has done for us or answers to prayer that we've seen in our own lives, it warms our heart. It reminds us of of God's love for us, and we see that, and it moves us to a heart of thankfulness. It moves us to, uh, to worship the Lord. Remembering the benefits of God renews our mind to what is right and true. You know, when you get in that that state of unbelief, you're not believing what is right and true. But to have your mind renewed brings it back to what is right and true. And that's what this psalm is about. This is what's right and true. And we're going to look at it here in just a little bit uh, as we go through these verses of all the benefits that God has for us. Well, what if you are really struggling with discouragement or depression or even just a spiritual dryness and you can't even remember specific answers to prayer or specific ways that God has dealt in mercy towards you? And I think there can be seasons of such darkness that the mind is affected and even your memory is affected where you just, you can't recall, you can't remember. It's not that you're saying God's never been kind to me or that God has never shown mercy to me, but you can't recount specific instances. Your mind can be affected in that way. Well, what are you to do then? Do just what David does here in this psalm. He doesn't start with the specific, particular answers to prayer in his own life. He could have said, forget none of his benefits, who helps me to slay Goliath, who strengthens me to kill a lion and a bear, and who delivers me from my enemies. That would have been a true testimony of David, but he doesn't do that. All these things are true for him, but instead, David focus, instead of focusing on the specific details, he zooms way out and he considers God's dealing with him in a very foundational sense. And for that, we can all imitate what he's done. And as we look at this, we'll be able to say, I haven't slain Goliath. I haven't killed a lion and a bear. But I am just like David in this. In verses 3 through the rest of the chapter, we can all say, this is true for me. And let's look at this first one here in the first part of verse 3. So we're remembering God's 
um, benefits towards us in this first one that he mentions, who pardons all your iniquities. Is there any greater benefit we can receive from God than this? He forgives our sins. Do you want to be reminded of how much God has done for you? Look to the cross. Look to the great sacrifice that Christ made for you. Meditate on Isaiah 53 where it so clearly spells out that our sins were placed upon Christ. And because he bore them on the cross, we now have peace with God. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So in remembering what God has done for you, start here. Start with God forgiving your sins. And remember what this flowed from is I said, if you're in a place where you can't even remember, you're struggling and you can't remember specific answers to prayer, you can start here. God, if you're a child of God, he has forgiven your sins. Your sins are no more. He's forgiven them. That is the place to start. But then it goes on, um, the second part of the verse here. It says, who heals all your diseases? Well, is David referring to physical sickness and disease? Or is this referring to spiritual sickness and disease? And I believe that this is the latter. Although it is true that God does heal our physical infirmities, this is not always the case. And even for those whom he does heal, the greatest infirmity, death, still comes. Think about Lazarus, whom God raised from the dead. Talk about the pinnacle of healing disease. He'd been in the grave for four days, or three days, I don't I guess it was three days, yeah. And um, the Lord raises him, so you could say he heals him, but I think it's safe to assume Lazarus died again. How many years later? We don't know, but he died again. Death eventually uh, took him. But think of this verse in light of sin being the great disease of the world. Matthew Henry here brings out how our crimes demand punishment, but God pardons our guilt, which that's the first half of verse 3 where it says he pardons all your iniquities. But then the second is that our disease is mortal, meaning it results in death, but God saves us by healing us. And that's the second part here of this verse, who heals all your diseases. We are no longer under the curse of death. The soul that sins shall die? Well, what about for the believer? The curse of death has been taken away. God has taken that for you. There is no longer that curse upon you. So verse 3 is a complete thought, ultimately. Forgiveness and healing. And you see that when you read it together, who pardons, forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. It's it's like a repetition. The sin is what is being forgiven and the sin is what is being healed. Well, verse 4 then goes on, who redeems your life from the pit? 
apart from God intervening in your life, where would you be heading? You were on the broad path that leads to destruction, to hell. Apart from God intervening in all of our lives, we would be on the fast track for hell if we weren't already there. But God redeems our life from the pit, or as another version says, he redeems our life from destruction. So what does redeem mean? It means to buy back, to purchase. God has bought our life back. Our life is now his. We once were slaves to sin and Satan, but God paid our ransom and bought us back. And we'll come back to this in just a little bit, but let's move on here to the second part of verse 4 where it says, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. So what a glorious thought this is. God places a crown upon us, and what is this crown? What is the crown that God has placed upon his children? His love or his compassion or as another version says, his tender mercies. When he pays our ransom, we are not brought in as slaves in bondage. We are brought in as beloved children. He crowns us with his love and mercy. Think about the father of the prodigal son. You know, when the, when the prodigal had returned, he had gone out and squandered his estate, and he repents, he comes to his senses, and he humbles himself before his father. And when he returns, what was the response of the father? It says that he played, the father placed the best robe on him and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This is a picture of how God is towards us. We are not sent away from him. It's not that the prodigal son comes back, the father comes out, kind of nods in acknowledgement, and then says, okay, go stay over there. He welcomes him in. He crowns him with love and with kindness. He puts the best on him. God brings us to himself and bestows such love and kindness towards us. And again, notice the connection of the first half of verse 4 with the second half here. God redeems us, he buys us back, and then he lavishes us with grace. It isn't like a slave being redeemed from one cruel master and being bought by another cruel master. It's not just trading from, you know, one master, here, I'll buy your slave for this much money, okay, it's sold. That's not it at all. This is the idea of being bought from the cruelest of slave masters from Satan himself and being brought into the very presence of God. What a contrast, what a mercy that God has redeemed us from destruction and then he has crowned us with such loving kindness and compassion. Colossians 1 says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That, exp- that summarizes really verse 4 here perfectly. He's redeemed us. He's, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness. And what has he transferred us to? The kingdom of his beloved Son. 
Well, then verse 5 says, Who satisfies your years with good things. In the margin of my Bible, it says, Satisfies your desire with good things. Every good desire we have is satisfied by God. Um, And we could also say this, that our years, as we look back upon the years of our life, God is the ultimate source of every good thing that we have. It comes from him. What an encouragement. Now think about this. Will the child of a king ever be lacking? Should the child of a king worry if he or she will be provided for by their father, the king? Think about it. In a kingdom, if you had the children of the king walking around the palace, just anxious and worried, I don't know if we're going to have food to eat, or I don't know if we're going to be protected, they're in a castle, they're in a fortress. What do they have to be afraid of? What do they have to worry about? They are the child of a king. Well... How much more for us then, if we are the children of the king of kings? Think about this verse. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? There in, that's in Matthew 7, uh, verse 11. One other one that I didn't type out here. Let me turn to real quick. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This kind of ties in the beginning here of this psalm, the verse 3 and 4. If God has forgiven your sins, and how, how did he forgive your sins? Not just by sweeping them away. He forgave your sins by sending Jesus, his son, to die on the cross. If God has done that for you, if he's given the ultimate gift that he can, which is his son, how will he not also freely give you all things, all good things? God's not going to withhold anything good from the Christian, from the believer. So verse 5 here, who satisfies your years with good things. Well, we're going to move on a little bit uh, more quickly through the rest of this. Um, At this point in the psalm, it may seem that David is done remembering all that God has done um, because the flow of the psalm changes. You know, verses 3 through 5, they each start with who pardons, who heals, who redeems, who crowns. So there's this pattern that David has established, but it changes in verses 6 and following. But it doesn't mean that he is done remembering all of God's benefits. Quite the opposite. He goes on for the rest of the chapter to delve in deeper into what God has done for the Christian and to unpack some of the character of God. So verse 6 here. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Here is another reason to praise the Lord. Here is another thing to remember about God. He is righteous. Think of all the unrighteousness around us in the world, and it is plainly evident right now. You just look around. There is unrighteousness all around us. 
God is righteous, and he will deal righteously in every situation. Are there those who are oppressed? And yes, there are. There are many who are oppressed. God will judge rightly in that. What a comfort, what a reason to rejoice that we have a God who is sovereign over all, and he is righteous, and he will judge righteously. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. This one may at first seem a little odd or out of place. Is this important enough that we should remember this? Yes, it is. Think of the mercy that God showed to Israel by revealing himself to them. Of all of the people and of all of the nations, he chose to reveal himself to Israel. He didn't leave them to figure things out for themselves. I mean, how lost would Israel have been if they were trying to seek after a God that they didn't know anything about? I mean, look at the nations around them. They didn't know anything about the God of Israel, and look where it led for them. I mean, just untold evil. But God gave Israel revelations of himself. He gave them the law. Now, that's wonderful for Moses and Israel, but what about for us? How does that affect us? How does God revealing himself to Old Testament Israel, why is that a reason for us to rejoice today? Well, it's a reason because he recorded all of this in Scripture so that we might read it and know him too. Apart from God revealing himself in Scripture, we would be in, in darkness and we would be ignorant of who God is and what he is like. So we can rejoice in the fact that God has revealed himself in the written words of Scripture, that he revealed himself in history to Israel because, because of that it's been recorded and now we thousands of years later, can open our Bible and know about what God is like. Well, verse 8, and this is going to be a little bit of a longer one, but as we unpack this one, it's actually going to encompass many of the other verses to follow. And so I'm just going to touch on it once, so don't think we're just stuck here on verse 8 for a while. Uh, Ultimately, I'm going to kind of incorporate a lot of these other verses in as we go. So verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. So the psalmist here says some pretty amazing things about God. Now where did he get this insight into what God is like? Was it through divine revelation? And to that I would say maybe. There's real possibility of that. But the psalmist is also very familiar with the rest of Scripture. And in Exodus 34, the Lord, God, says some amazing things to Moses. Moses had asked if he could see God's glory. And as you remember, God places him in this uh, uh, cleft of a rock and passes by in front of him. And this is what it says in verse 6. So this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And this is what it says. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's word for word, basically, what David just says here in verse 8 here in Psalm 103. And also, I was looking this up, he says it repeatedly throughout the Psalms. The Lord is gracious, uh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So the psalmist is just repeating what God has already said. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these four descriptions briefly. So the first one, compassionate. The Lord is compassionate. Compassion means, uh, this is the dictionary definition, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune. But then there's a follow-up to that, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. So it's not just this idea of, oh, I feel so sorry for you, but I feel moved to act on your behalf. I want to relieve that suffering. That is what compassion is. This is our God. He feels sympathy for us and desires to help us. And you see it so perfectly modeled in the life of Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, it says this about Jesus. Seeing the people, he, that is Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And that, that is uh, used or uh, said about Jesus on a few occasions during his earthly ministry, that he felt compassion and responded. He, he moved, he acted on their behalf. This is how God is towards us. Um, Think about the prodigal's father. We already talked about the prodigal son. When he saw him, what did the father do? We already talked about once he met up with the son, he you know, placed the robe on him and ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. But it says when he saw him from a distance, he felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is our God. This is how he is towards us. And you see it further down here in Psalm 103 in verse 13 where it says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now this may be hard for some to think about because not everyone has had a good earthly father. But think about the best possible earthly father. If you were to imagine the best kind of father you could, whether it be you're thinking of your own dad, or maybe you're thinking about the the failings of a father and thinking how it could have been. Well, think about the best father, one who cares for his children, one who is concerned for them, one who is ready and desires to help them whenever they are in need, one who provides for them. That is a good father. But even the best earthly father is just a faint shadow of what our heavenly father is like. Our God is a compassionate father. And here in verse 13 it says, Just as earthly fathers have compassion on their children, so the Lord has compassion. He has compassion on those who fear him. Well, the second 
point here on verse 8. It says, gracious. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. This is the idea of showing mercy. Grace is unmerited favor. The Lord is the one who shows us abundant favor when we haven't earned it. We, we don't deserve it, yet he lavishes it on us. Did that son, the prodigal son, did he deserve to be rewarded with such love from the father? No, he had wasted his father's, the, the inheritance that his father had given him. He had acted very foolishly. He might add, he had acted very sinfully towards his father. And yet his father just lavishes grace upon him. He didn't deserve it, but the father gives it to him. You see this very thought in verse 10 uh, here in Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Why not? Why has he not dealt with us according to our sins? Because he's gracious. If the Lord had dealt with us as we deserve, we would be in hell. But he has shown mercy and grace in given us what we don't deserve. Well, the third one, he is slow to anger. This speaks of the patience of God. God is very long-suffering. Think of how we are with our children. We love them. We seek to be a picture of our Heavenly Father to them. We, We seek to model what God is like to our children. But many times we lose our patience with them. We tell our children over and over to do something, and they keep forgetting Or we teach our children over and over the right way to do something, and they keep doing it the wrong way. And sometimes we lose our patience and react in harsh or an angry way. But our Heavenly Father is not that way. We fail over and over and over again, and He is so patient with us. He is slow to anger. He is even slow to anger towards the lost. He is not ignorant of the evils that are taking place every day. It's not as if they're happening and, well, God just doesn't know about it. That's why he's not responding. No, he knows everything. Yet he doesn't destroy lives every time someone commits an act of evil. He is patient. He allows time for the offender to repent On the day of judgment, think about this, on the day of judgment, no one will be able to accuse God of not giving them enough time. Our God is a patient God. He is slow to anger. He is slow to anger towards the lost, towards the sinner. In their sin, he is slow to anger. And certainly towards his own children, he is slow to anger. And then this last one in verse 8 abounding in loving kindness. Loving kindness is a word that is frequently used in the Bible to describe how God is towards us. And it speaks of his special love, his tender mercy, his favor towards us. But notice though it says God is abounding in loving kindness. God is not stingy in his loving kindness. He is overflowing He abounds in loving kindness. 
He is infinite in his love, and it cannot be measured. You know, we sang that song this morning, the love of God is greater far, and that throughout that song you get this idea of an infinite amount of love. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? I mean, that's, that's like a lot of paper to be writing on. And if the ocean was ink, and every stalk on earth was a quill, and every person started writing out the love of God, there wouldn't be enough room. It would dry up. That's the idea of this infinite, abundant, loving kindness that God has. And you see it in verse 11 and 12 here in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Here in these two verses, 11 and 12, we have two examples of infinity. How high are the heavens above the earth? Well, I did a little research on this about our solar system. The nearest star uh, to our um, solar system is Proxima Centauri, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's the closest star to Earth, aside from the sun, that is. And it is four and a quarter light years away. Doesn't really mean a whole lot. Doesn't sound too terribly far, four and a quarter, until you realize that light travels at 186,000 miles per second, which if you do the calculations, that's 669 million miles an hour, and that's 16 billion miles in one day that light can travel, which means that the nearest star is 24.8 trillion miles from Earth. So that's four and a quarter light years away. Well, that's 24.8 trillion miles away. They estimate the size, the vastness of our universe. So I said that light travels at, if my calculations are right here, 669 million miles per hour. That's pretty fast, right? So if you started at one end of the universe going 669 million miles an hour, how long would it take you to get to the other end? 93 billion years to get across the universe. This is unbelievably large. So with modern technology and a lot of guesswork, we can throw around some figures to see how high the heavens are above the earth. But I think it's safe to say we really don't have a clue. We have no idea how vast and how large this is. It's an innumerable distance. In other words, it's a really good comparison for how much loving kindness God has towards us. It can't be measured. It's abounding. It's infinite. The next example of infinity used in verse 12 asks how far the east is from the west. Think about this. If you draw a line going this way that doesn't end ever, and then you draw a line going this way that doesn't end ever, how far apart are the ends of those lines that never end? Infinite. You can't describe the distance between them. They are infinite. 
Well, that is how far God has removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. So we're talking here about the abundance of God's loving kindness towards us, and I hope that I've made it clear that he has an infinite amount of love and mercy and grace in store for each one of us. But how long? How long will he be this way towards us? Will he ever change? And notice verse 17 and 18. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The psalmist makes it very clear. God has had this loving kindness towards us from eternity past, and it will continue into eternity future. In other words, it will never end. And who is this infinite and everlasting loving kindness for? Towards those who fear him, towards us, towards the believer, towards you if you're a follower of Christ. Well, I just want, we're going to skip down to verse 19, but I want to summarize real, real quickly just a few verses that I'm skipping over. So verses 14 through 16 we're not going to touch on. But verse 14 here speaks, is a following, it follows the thought there in verse 13 about the father having compassion on his children and the Lord having compassion on us. Um, and then he says in verse 14, he knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. And then verses 15 and 16 goes on to speak about how uh, fragile the human life is, that we're like grass here for a day, the wind blows, and then we die, we pass away. But that sets up then this contrast in verse 17, which we just looked at, about the eternal, everlasting mercy that God has towards us. We may only be here for a short while, but his loving kindness towards us is everlasting. It'll never end. Well, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Here we have a concluding reason to bless the Lord, a final benefit to not be forgotten. The Lord is ruler over all. He is not like the gods of the nations, you know, where you had this God is the God of the land, and this God is the God of the seas, and they even had, you know, this God is the God of the mountains, and this one here is the God of the plains, and we want to be fighting against the enemy where our God is ruler. No, our God is not that way. Our God is God of heaven and earth. His throne is in the heavens. He is ruler over all. And think about this, what a comfort during troubling times like we are in right now. God is ruler over all. He is still in control. Well, the psalmist began this psalm with a personal call to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he concludes now uh, in verse 20, Bringing it back around, bless the Lord. But he now calls upon the angels, verse 20, bless the Lord, you his angels. Verse 21, the hosts, bless the Lord, all you his hosts. 
And then verse 22, bless the Lord all you works of his, which I would take that to be all of creation is to worship and bless the Lord. So in closing, in verse 2, we were exhorted to forget none of his benefits. What benefits has he given to you? What testimonies from your life could be told of God's great benefits towards you? Think about that. Think back over this past week. Think back over this past year. Or think back as far as you can remember about God's dealings, God's gracious dealings with you. Think about it. Meditate on it. Don't forget it. Let that be what motivates you to bless the Lord with all that is within you. Um, I was thinking about this. We got a book from a pastor, uh, Ryan Fullerton. His wife's, I think it was grandfather, was a uh, pastor, evangelist up in Canada, and he basically just had a diary of sorts that he kept, just retelling stories from his life, and it was published into this book. They're just really short chapters. Um, Many of them are not all that, um, I don't know, impressive isn't the right word, but just they're, they're kind of ordinary events that happened in his life, but he's recounting God's mercy, God's grace in his life and in those throughout his ministry. And some of them are quite supernatural. Um, But what a testimony. Here's this booklet of, honestly, it's probably a pastor that the world won't know anything of until maybe eternity. But here he's recounted God's gracious dealings in his life. Honestly, every one of us could write a book like that. God's gracious dealings in our life. And it starts right here, who forgives, who pardons all your iniquities. That's, that's the beginning cry of worship for every true Christian. God has forgiven my sins. And let me tell you what else he has done. And then it just goes on and on from there. Well, I asked Andy if he would uh, play a song for us, and this is uh, new to us in a sense, but I don't honestly believe it will be new to anybody here. It's a very familiar song uh, written by Matt Redman uh, titled 10,000 Reasons, or another title is Bless the Lord. Um, And it's taken directly from Psalm 103. I listened to a message that John MacArthur gave And he was, to introduce this chapter, he was bringing out all these hymns that have been written based on Psalm 103. And according to MacArthur, he said, more songs have been written about Psalm 103 than any other psalm except Psalm 23. So this is really kind of the launching pad of many songs. And this is one of them here, the song we're going to sing. But verse 2 that we'll sing says this, You're rich in love. And you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. So I thought it was a a fitting song to, to sing just in light of looking at this psalm here. So Andy, why don't you come and play it for us.